Well, let's uh, make our way towards our seats for Sunday school. We have, a, we have a couple good students down front, so thank you. So this morning we're going to continue on in our study of the Heidelberg Catechism. Uh, we're going to do Lord's Day 24 today. That's questions 62 through 64. If you're following along, that's on page 882 of the Psalter Hymnal. I know that there are some loose ends that we didn't quite tie up last week, uh, but some of those questions are still going to come up this week, and I made a point to um, bring some of those things up, so hopefully, hopefully that will give you some closure as far as uh, some of the things that we were talking about with those last questions uh, last week. But for this week, we'll look at questions 62 to 64, and... Um, Let's, let's read those together. I'll ask the question and then ask that you guys respond with the answer. Question 62. Why can't our good works be our righteousness before God, or at least part of our righteousness? Because the righteousness which has passed by judgment must be entirely perfect. How can our good works be said to merit nothing when God promises to reward them in this life and the next? But doesn't this teaching make people indifferent and wicked? Well, let's, let's pray this morning. Heavenly Father, as we come uh, to study together, to think about uh, these things, we ask uh, that you would give us clarity of thought. Lord, that you would help us to think biblically, help us to think uh, clearly and rightly, uh, help us to think your thoughts after you as you have revealed yourself to us in your word. And Lord, may our time be fruitful uh, for our growth in grace, and may Christ be magnified in his name. Amen. All right. So the previous questions made clear to us last week that our righteous standing before God, our righteousness, as we call it, is not of our doing, but is and ever will be a gift of God. And a gift of God's sheer grace, you remember that word, sheer grace, coming uh, from the catechism itself, uh, in that faith that is a gift, the grace that is given to us, uh, is faith in the person and work of Christ himself. Now, given the answer to question 62, right, 62 is asking, well, okay, can't there be a little bit... <laughs> that I merit? Can't there be something in what I'm doing 
that, uh, that helps my standing before God? Think about question uh, answer 62. Because the righteousness which can pass God's judgment must be entirely perfect and must in every way measure up to the divine law. Now let's think about, for a second, let's think about God's standard of righteousness. And that will help us to see how misguided perhaps our questions, if we have legitimate questions like this question, actually is. Think about God's righteous standard. Deuteronomy 27, 26. Cursed be anyone who does not conform the words of this law by doing them. The, the, the entirety of God's law. Leviticus eleven forty four. What does God say? For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy. For I am holy. What does God require? So if we're talking about merit, right, if we're talking about securing for ourselves some type of standing before God, as if we merited, we actually completed the work that he had for us to do, what is that work? What is the standard? Perfection. Perfection. And like we said last week, right, it's not just perfection in this particular moment in time, which is impossible in and of itself, but it's perfection entirely, perpetually, exactly, right? Uh, and you might wonder, well, where did I, why did I, why do I say those words, right? Entire, personal, exact, perpetual. Well, that really just comes from the Westminster Confession uh, on good works. Chapter 19, 1 says, God gave to Adam a law as a covenant of works by which he bound him and all his posterity to personal, entire, exact, and perpetual obedience, promised life upon fulfilling, and threatened death upon the breach of it. Right, so, so like we said last week, God's righteous standard requires personal, entire, exact, and perpetual obedience. And any other kinds of words that you want to throw in there that would say the same thing by saying it has to be entire. It has to be perfect. And it can't just be for a moment. Now, perhaps you've heard it said, right? Do your best and what? God will do the rest. Right? After all, how could we, who are imperfect people, of course possibly measure up to his righteousness. Think about that for a minute. Because that's a, that's, a, that's a question that particularly unbelievers often have. When you start talking about God's justice, when you start talking about the necessity of a dying Savior, when you start talking about atonement and sacrifice and all those kinds of things, well, isn't God unfair to expect Perfect obedience from Adam. Wasn't that unfair of God? Was it? Was it unfair of God to create man and expect that he would perfectly, exactly, entirely, and perpetually obey all that God commanded? No. Why? Yeah. 
Adam's different than us, and sometimes we forget this. Adam's different. His nature is different. He was created. How was he created? What's, what's the estate that Adam was created in? Yeah, he was innocent. What else? He was, he was holy. Yeah, he, was, he had original holiness, right? We come into this world with original sin and guilt and, and corruption. He didn't come with that. He didn't come with the baggage that we have. He also walked with God. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Adam walked with God. Right? So is it unfair? No, Adam was endowed with the ability to keep God's law perfectly. But Adam fell from that condition and he fell into an estate of sin and misery. Now I want to take a moment and maybe you're, you may think that this is kind of off the track of what we're, what we're looking at in the Heidelberg Catechism. But I think uh, that it's going to help us clarify some things. And so I want to take a moment to talk about something that in theology we call the fourfold estate of man. Because I do think it'll help to clarify some of these things about the nature of righteousness, about the nature of God's law, and about our inability or ability to do good works. So we just talked about Adam. Uh, that estate is a pre-fall estate, man before the fall. Like I said, he was endowed with the ability to obey God perfectly. He was able to not sin, but he was also able to sin. Now, theologians always like to use fancy Latin words, right? So we, we go around saying something like, passe non peccare est passe peccare. So possible to not sin and possible to sin. That's Adam's condition, right? That, that condition we know, though, was not unchangeable. That is, Adam was not immutable in that condition. He could fall from that estate that he was created in. And did he continue in that estate? No, we all know he didn't because <laughs> we all feel the effects of it. We all know the effects of it. And so let's go on to that second estate. That is second estate being the post-fall man. So in Adam... <clears throat> We learn from scripture that we all fell in Adam, were guilty of Adam's sin, and along with that, we also have the corruption of sin. And so, post-fall man has lost any ability to not sin. So for fallen man, it is not possible to not sin. Non passe, non peccare. Not possible to not sin. So when Adam fell, he plunged himself and his posterity into an estate of sin and misery, which brought death. Did Adam die when he ate of the fruit of the tree? Yes, right? He died. He spiritually died and would physically die as well. And so death reigned from Adam to Moses, and has thus become the experience of every single person born into this world, born in Adam. All are born in Adam. None are born with original righteousness, but born with original sin. 
Right? There's no blank slates. Is that? Yes. So, um, with that background in mind, can you then argue that before the fall, that Adam maybe was tending the garden and he was doing good works, and those good works counted for his righteousness <coughs> before the fall? Before the fall. That they were meriting something, that he was doing something to merit God's favor. Is that the question? Yeah. In that covenant of works? Yes. Yes. I'll leave it at that. All right. Is that the end of the estates? No. There's a third estate. Reborn man. And this is important. Okay? When we're born again, there's a renovative change to our nature. How does scripture talk about the nature of man in Jesus? Any, any thoughts? Yeah, Bob. No, no longer a slave to sin. No longer a slave to sin. What else? What other kind of language does scripture use? Heart of stone has been replaced with heart of flesh. Yep. Heart of stone versus a heart of flesh. We have, we have language like the old man and the new man, the old self, the new self. And that's for good reason that Scripture speaks about the nature of the believer as being different from the nature of man fallen in Adam. See, because united to Jesus, we enter into a new estate. For the first time, we are able to not sin. Now, this isn't perfection. I'm not saying that that's perfection. But we do not only produce sin anymore. In Jesus. Can I get an amen, right? We don't only produce sin, right? We remain able to sin, but we do not only sin. We are also able to not sin. So for reborn man, it is passe non pecare. It's possible to not sin. When temptation comes and, and comes to the door, you can actually, in Jesus, say no. Because it's part of your new nature. Well, that doesn't mean that you do it of your own strength. You do it of the, the work of God in you by His Spirit, by His grace. But you actually can say no to sin. You don't have to do it. See, by new birth, by the permanent indwelling of the Spirit of God, we can actually say no. Now, that means something, though. That for the Christian, we can't simply blame our condition for our failure to obey. We can't do that anymore. Right? We confess our failure and we confess our sin. We repent of our waywardness and we press on in Christ toward the goal. Now, this is one of the loose ends I want to tie up a little bit from last week. Go back and look at question 60. Is it true, looking at the answer there, is it true when it says, still being inclined toward all evil? That's what Paul said in Romans 7. Yeah. But, but is that the entirety of the story? Right? See, by all evil, we must not mean total evil. Right? 
We, we need to recognize the difference there between the believing condition and the unbelieving condition. But at the same time, we need to recognize something else that, ver, that, that question 62 says. That our best works in this life are all imperfect and they are stained with sin. Yet they are nonetheless good works. Now what might understanding man fallen in Adam, understanding man reborn in Christ, tell us about the good works of unbelieving man? Right? That's often a claim, right? The unbeliever often has claim, I do good works. I do these good things. Look at how people are benefiting from what I'm doing. How do those stand to God's scrutiny according to his standard? They don't. You don't see any of this. Yeah, they're not. Why? That which is not done in faith is sin. Yeah, that's... Exactly right. That which is not done in faith is sin. Now, how do we understand that then? How do we understand it? Because there is actually, like, benefit when the unbeliever does good things. Right? When the unbeliever is restrained in their evil, they're not doing things that are in conformity to what is in the depths of their hearts. And that's a good thing, right? So how do we understand that in relation to their condition? Allison, go ahead. Yeah. Well, we did not, well, we don't care to understand the Yeah. Exactly, because if we, if we think about the law of God, and as the law of God is summarized by Jesus, what, what's the, what is it? Yeah, go ahead. What I was going to say is that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so when we do anything, and that is not, because, you know, that love for God is, is what we do is not an overflow of that love for him when we're sinning. Yeah. And so God, out of his grace and his kindness, his ordinary kindness to humanity, can still work through those things for good, but we are still in sin because our motivations are not out of love. 
Yeah. So there's more than just merely the act of a good work, we might say. There, there's the goal, there's the motive, there's the standard to those good works, all of which must be right in order to rightly say that a good work is good. Right? that's right we call that common grace right and the one thing to recognize about common grace is that common grace always serves special grace so the lord restrains and evil as he does in such a way as to serve the building of his kingdom right yes sir i think uh, one thing i'm always talking to my history students about is that's exactly right <clears throat> I think that's exactly right because you know think about something you, you know when you start thinking about the fact that an unbeliever says you know we, we we can talk about unbelievers in terms of their consciences and talk about that as image of God right the law written on their hearts when we recognize that but in other ways there's specific Christian kind of ideas that float around in secular world and inform even the secular view that a that an unbeliever has about the world but we recognize as christians that well all truth is god's truth and we recognize that those unbelievers are experiencing the blessing that we have and they're standing and using borrowed capital right in, in worldview study we might talk about that as well they're using borrowed capital hey you're you're on my worldview using my presuppositions to to get to where you are where you think those things are right and just and good i mean i now i don't want to get in too much trouble here but but i think we have an example of that even early on 
before the founding of our own country in its philosophical systems, right? Where does, where does something like we hold these truths to be self-evident come from? And why does it feel like we don't hold those truths to be so self-evident anymore, right? There, there's things happening uh, with the breakdown of certain Christian thought that doesn't allow that philosophical system quite to measure up anymore in the same way. I'm not, I'm not saying that America is doomed and anything like that. That's not what I'm getting at. <laughs> yeah, Allison. Secular people, we like to cheat. We want the fruit, but we all want the fruit. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. It doesn't work that way. No. And now we see, I was born in 59, so I'm 64, and in those times, you see a lot of shriveled up fruit that, was, that a lot of people took for granted, and society was more cohesive and nice and everything. Yeah. Right. going and I want to talk about good works and merit and I know I didn't get to the fourth estate I didn't do that on purpose so I understand let's talk about works and merit for a second so tell me about where the work good works of the believer come from where do they come from everything good is from God yeah everything good is from God right and any goodness that flows out of the life of the believer is from God, right? We should recognize that being the case. Pretty simple kind of, of truth. And so, are they then properly meritorious? If we talk about merit like we talked about merit in terms of Adam in the garden meriting eternal life by perfect, exact, entire perpetual obedience. Are they meritorious? Yeah, like Scott. I, said, I think of Ephesians 2.10 where it's that he's prepared him in advance for us to walk in. So I kind of feel fundamentally it's hard to claim merit with somebody else prepared him for me. <laughs> I mean, I guess right. I read it for him. Right, right. I think you're exactly right. Was it last week that we read that? We read Ephesians 2, 8 to 10, I think. But I made the point, right, that you can't separate Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 from Ephesians 10 with it. Those things go together as a package, right? You can't just separate out the benefits of Jesus that you want to talk about and leave out the other ones, particularly the good works that come in the life of the believer. Yeah, Jen. Well, it also says something that we can't remember where our works, our duty. They are things that God is commanded to do. So everything we do is a duty and obedience to our God. Yeah. Again, that it's not an optional appendage that we would do good works. It's part of what it means to live by faith. Gifted faith and the gifted works that God gives us to do. It's, yeah, Kristen. So it flows out of gratitude as well, right? Right. Right. That's, that's exactly right. You see, when, when we're redeemed, God's righteous standard remains the same. 
right? Redemption isn't God lowering his standard, but fulfilling that righteous requirement in Christ and gifting it to those whom he has chosen, right? Nobody's perfect, right? That's why we need to believe Christ who is perfect, right? God doesn't, for the person who says, oh, well, nobody's perfect, I'm just going to try and do my best. No, we need somebody who is perfect to be perfect for us. Because God is not looking down on us in our condition and saying, oh, okay, well, I'm just going to lower my standard down for them because they can't do this. Right. Yeah, Allison. Yeah. 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 Right. That's right. So let's think for a second about good works in the eyes of the believer and the unbeliever, which we talked about, but I want to use um, some scripture passages to, to illustrate this. Think about Matthew 7, verses 15 to 27. Just think about good works here. Jesus says, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will come and say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. What's the perspective of the unbeliever there? How does the unbeliever see his works? Well, what do they do? They think they're working for God. Yeah. Lord, Lord, did we not? Did we not? Look at these things that I've done. That's why you should accept me. Right? The ungodly look upon their best works as having merit. Now compare that then later on in the Gospel of Matthew to Matthew 25, verses 34 to 39. Jesus says, Then the king will come and say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? 
And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked, or and clothe you? And when did we see you sick, or in prison, and visit you? How do, how do the godly see their works? It's just what I did. That wasn't me. Right? They don't, the godly doesn't see anything meritorious in the work that they're doing. Their hope is built on the righteousness and sacrifice of Christ alone. That's where it is. That's where their eyes are fixed, on Jesus. And those good works that are done in faith and truly arise then out of a love for God and, and for neighbor that comes as a result of God's good gifts. Right? It's, only, it's only then, right? The, the Christian has an opportunity to actually love someone for the first time. To actually love someone. To actually do something selfless for their God and selfless for someone else. Really, because they're not meriting anything. There's a freedom that is involved in that. So then look at question 64. But doesn't this teaching make people indifferent and wicked? If I'm not meriting righteousness, right? if it's not me that God is looking at to make that declaration that you are my beloved child... Well, wasn't, doesn't that just make us lax and lazy? Right? Shall we not then just continue in sin so that grace may abound? Of course we should. Is that what this teaching will do to those who truly have faith in Jesus and are trusting alone in his merit for them, his righteousness for their sin? No. No, right? <laughs> Good. Yes. The right answer to the question. No, it is impossible for those grafted into Christ by true faith not to produce fruits of gratitude. There again, Kristen, like you were saying, right? The fruits of gratitude. Those who have received grace upon grace upon grace. Right? So then can a person be saved without works? What does the scripture say? Can you be saved without works? No, you can't. Faith without works is dead. Do your good works, done in faith, merit your salvation? No. Do you see those important distinctions that you're making there? See, those who have true faith will indeed produce true fruit. Think about what Luke 6 says, verses 43 to 45. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good. 
and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. And so for the believer dead in sin, in that first or second estate in Adam, all of their works are sin continually. But for the believer who has been resurrected in the inner man, there are good spirit-wrought works produced. Now, I said that I left out that fourth estate because I wanted to end with that fourth estate because there's a, there's a glorious promise in that fourth estate and a glorious hope that we have. See, glorified man is that final estate. Glorified man, right? Reborn man awaits the day when he will be unable to sin. Right? So, so for all of those who have been redeemed by Jesus, guess what awaits us? In a state in which we will be unable to sin. Non passe peccare, right? Unable to sin. And that will be an immutable estate. In a state where we can't fall from that. Now some people talk about, oh, we need to go back to the garden. If only we could go back to the garden. No, we don't want to go back to the garden. Because Adam was in the garden and he was with the Lord. And guess what? He fell into sin and misery. We want to go into glory. We want to go into paradise where, guess what? Jesus has secured forever and immutably our inability to sin. Our perfect righteousness and holiness and glory with him forever. Right? That's what awaits the believer. And it's only just a matter of time. It is only just a matter of time before we shed the sin that so easily entangles us now and we enter into glory. And so just think about one thing. You know, some people bemoan the estate that we're in now. And it's it's tough, right? It's trials. It's suffering unto glory. It's bearing the cross before the glory that comes. But do you realize that you are right now more like you will be than you were? You are an inheritor of eternal life. The treasure of eternal life has begun in you. And for eternity, you will do good works for the glory of God. Produced by his spirit. That's good stuff, isn't it? And so no. Absolutely not. This teaching will not make people indifferent and wicked. And if it does, what does that mean? They're not born again. And they must be born again. Right? All right. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the glories of Jesus. Lord, we could go on and on day after day after day speaking about all that it means that Christ came into this world to save sinners. Even this time here, these few moments talking about these things, Lord, would you sanctify this to us? Would you help us? to think more clearly? Would you enable us to love you more perfectly? Not of our own doing, not of our own strength, but Lord, 
out of the grace that you give, that we would walk in those good works that you prepared beforehand, that we would do so with love and gratitude for all that is ours in Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.